Good morning. It's Friday, the 22nd of September, and this is Govindraj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital and most rocking city in the world. Our top stories and themes for the day: the Sensex and markets fall as Federal Reserve fears of another rate hike in the United States weigh in. India-Canada ties worsen. Will trade and business be impacted? The government's airline regulator suspends Air India's safety head. What does that mean? Why are India's savings levels falling so dramatically? And India is emerging as a future export manufacturing powerhouse with competitive cost structures, says a new Boston Consulting report. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. And the markets are nervous. Nervousness reigned in the Indian stock markets as selling pressure continued for the second day on Thursday, also the weekly expiry date for futures and options. The US Federal Reserve stance of a tighter policy through 2024 spooked investors all over. The BSE Sensex was down 571 points to end at 66230 while the Nifty 50 closed at 19742 down 159 points. Remember the target that was breached and held for a few days was 20000. Night before Federal Reserve officials in the United States voted to hold interest rates steady at a 22 year high but seemed to be split over whether they should raise them once more this year but most of them leaned towards another increase which of course spooked everyone. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said that officials didn't need to decide yet whether to lift rates again after a historically rapid series of increases over the past 18 months and as they await evidence that a recent inflation slowdown could be sustained reported the Wall Street Journal. Elsewhere, Chinese stocks hit the lowest level since November as an exodus of foreign funds continued amid persistent concerns about the economy. The MSCI China index dropped as much as 1.6% on track for a third consecutive week of losses. Bloomberg News is reporting that the sell-off is yet another indication that Beijing's efforts to restore market confidence are falling flat with investors. Meanwhile, the British pound fell after the Bank of England also held interest rates steady amid mounting concerns over the economy and signs that inflation is receding. The India-Canada imbroglio The India-Canada diplomatic spat has escalated with India suspending visas for Canadians wanting to visit India and Canada saying it would reduce the number of diplomats in India due to security concerns. The spat began over the murder of a Sikh activist wanted in India over terror charges but residing in Canada. Global Affairs Canada said some diplomats have received threats on social media platforms part of a unfolding backlash in India following Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's claims on Monday that Indian government agents had assassinated a prominent Sikh leader on Canadian soil. India has termed these allegations absurd and denied involvement in this June 19 shooting of Hardeep Singh Nijjar who was pushing for an independent Sikh homeland in India according to reports in Bloomberg. In the light of the current environment where tensions have heightened we are taking action to ensure the safety of our diplomats Global Affairs Canada said in a statement on Thursday and out of an abundance of caution we have decided to temporarily adjust staff presence in India Now to get a sense on the business and trade side of India Canada relations and what could be affected I reached out to well-known economics journalist international trade commentator and columnist Shankar Iyer and began by asking him how he was reading it You know, as far as business goes, between private to private corporations, I don't see an immediate impact. But 
expansion of engagement, expansion of trade could be hampered. You would know that for the past decade or so, India and Canada have been trying to sign up a free trade deal. Now, the interesting thing for Canada is that Canada has a free trade agreement with all the G7 members. So it makes it an interesting partner in trade. So Indian companies can land out, part finish their goods, whatever, you know, there can be an expansion in trade. For India, the other advantage is the geography of Canada. It's part of the NAFTA area. That's the other advantage. The third advantage in the age of digitalization, technology, and generative AI is a large number of companies in the U.S. see Canada as an option B for their employees do not necessarily get an H-1B or whatever, you know. And Canada is home to three of the Turing Award winners in artificial intelligence. Now, that said one part. For Canada, which has had a very troubled relationship with China in the recent past, access to a market of 1.4 billion people is very important. But economic conditions are necessary but not sufficient for trade deals. So what is necessary may not be sufficient. And here, I think this particular episode is a manifestation of domestic politics. Whatever grievance of Canada, questions asked by the leader of opposition, Pierre Polivier, in the Canadian parliament, validate the concerns of India. Pierre Polivier asked, where is the credible evidence to whatever has been alleged? And the second part, which is interesting that he raised it, he said that foreign interference has been there from China. Two Canadians were held against their wishes in China and Canada didn't do anything about it, or at least the present regime didn't do anything about it, and trade continued. So now to flip back to the position, I think it is quite unfortunate that at a time the rest of the world is sort of moving towards India in economic and political, geopolitical engagement, that this should pop up. Seems that there is something incongruent in the whole argument that is being made. So there are two areas. One is direct investments and the second is portfolio investments. Some of the calculations I've been seeing, for example, suggest that there's anywhere between 30 and $40 billion in just portfolio investments. And then there are venture capital investments as well, which may not be doing that well. Is all of this an area of concern? So one of the major beneficiaries of India's infrastructure expansion is the monetization of those assets. The Canadian pension funds have found an avenue and India has found money to regrow its expansion. I think that is an area that may get affected or at least there might be some delays, there might be a second thought. Pension funds typically abhor disharmony between nations. So there will be some amount of that caution. I think private equity will still persist because private equity is a pure profit play. The Canadian pension fund, for instance, is a very big investor in India's infrastructure play. And there might be some amount of rethink or a delay, which is, in a sense, reflective of the tension between the two heads of state. Right. So in general, now, when you look at around the globe, what is currently dominating more? Is it trade or is it politics, whether domestic or international? So standard and poor companies who reported results in two quarters of earning calls in the U.S., mentioned the word geopolitics 12,000 times in their calls. So geopolitics is emerging as a significant factor, not just because of the China, Taiwan, Russia, Ukraine issues, 
but there is a very visible re-globalization going on, which is nearshoring, friendshoring, whatever name you can call it. And that affects the trade flows. And so you will see geopolitics pop up at every corner of the street. I mean, it is a significant factor. Right, Shankar. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Govind. Air India safety head is suspended. The Director General of Civil Aviation on Thursday suspended Air India's Chief of Flight Safety Rajiv Gupta for a month after finding several lapses during a surveillance carried out in July. Air India belonged to the Government of India but was acquired fully by the Tata Group in January 2022. The DGCA surveillance conducted on July 25th and 26th found deficiencies in the accident prevention work carried out by the organization and the availability of the requisite technical manpower as required in the approved flight safety manual and the relevant civil aviation requirements, said the regulator in a statement, according to reports. Further, the airline regulator said, it was observed that some of the internal audit spot checks claimed to be carried out by the airline were done in a perfunctory manner and not as per the regulatory requirements. After the surveillance, the regulator requested an action-taken report from the airline. Once Air India submitted the report, the regulator issued a show-cause notice to the concerned post holders. The approval of Chief of Flight Safety of Air India has been suspended for a period of one month for the lapses established, said the DGCA. Air India and Indigo have a combined domestic market share of around 80% in 2023, which makes it a duopoly of sorts, or actually a duopoly in every which way, with Indigo holding about 56% of market share and Air India about 25%. To get a sense of this suspension and what it means and whether it was common, I reached out to Anjali Bhargava, aviation columnist and also consulting editor with the core. And I began by asking her how she was seeing this suspension. Some of the key appointments, which is chief of operations and chief of flight safety are made with you know the concurrence and the clearance of DGCA. So yes, EGCA is in a position to suspend chief of flight. Okay. And what are the likely violations here? And has such a suspension happened before in any other airline that you're familiar with or aware of? Yeah. I mean, the one that I clearly remember was just two years ago, Air Asia India, both the chief of operations and the head of flight safety were suspended by DGCA after they found some violations. I think this was in 2020. And there have been many other cases. I mean, typically, you know, this happens when they have found some lapses, either in the audits or in the checks, the training requirements and manuals or reporting of incidents. There's a whole range of things that DGCA goes into. And this suspension that's happened now was preceded by DGCA suspending training at both Air India's Hyderabad and Bombay simulator facilities. So they had stopped the training. This was, I think, just now, end of August. They had suspended the training and then they were investigating further. And this is the follow-up action on that. So is this been building up in some way over time or is it somewhat sudden? DGCA is supposed to routinely do and it's supposed to do it routinely for all the airlines. But I do think that I have been receiving both WhatsApps and emails and so on from a whole range of Air India sources. And all these indicate that, you know, the training standards in particular, that is what I would worry about. The training standards of the airline have been slipping and this is Something that's been happening in the last few years, it's not something that's happened 
overnight. And this can be a safety concern and it's something that needs further looking in. Right. And should passengers worry? It is always a risk because there's always a man and machine and a whole range of things have to work in perfect sensory for you to leave and reach a place safely. There are layers and layers in this. Recently, there was an incident where an Indigo pilot passed away because he had heart trouble. And, you know, the joke that was doing the rounds, and it's hardly funny, in Air India circles and Air India WhatsApps among the commanders, was that if this had been our commander who had passed away, we're not sure that the co-pilot would be able to land and we may have crashed. Of course, it was a joke, but it's hardly funny. The thing is that in general, there has been a deterioration in standards of training of the airline for a while now. Flying an aircraft, I mean, that. Three, four things. One is that, yes, I'm capable of flying. So, you know, whatever is mandatory, whatever DGCA requires or, you know, any authorities in any country require, I'm able to fly an aircraft. There is a second thing, which is being competent. You know, whenever you're in a tricky situation, say out of 10 tricky situations, if you take the right call in seven, eight, nine, you would be called a competent pilot. That is something that comes with some amount of experience, some amount of sense. Somebody else might have done something else. And then there is confidence. You know, So it's being able to fly, being competent, and being confident. And this is something that, again, many times in Mumbai and Goa and many of the Ladakh, some of the trickier airports, many of the co-pilots or even the young commanders are sometimes called in and cancelled rather than take the flight because they're under confidence. There's a whole range of things that plays up. So there's a very grey line. Right. Anjali, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you. Why are household savings falling? Numbers released by the Reserve Bank of India suggest that the flow of net household financial savings have dropped to a 50-year low of 5.1% of GDP or gross domestic product in 2022-23 as compared to 7.2% in the previous year. While the reasons could be many for these savings numbers going down, the worry is what could be driving it. For example, could it be that households have suffered income setbacks as the Business Standard newspaper has argued or that the economic recovery has been largely led by corporate profits? It is also possible, the Business Standard argues, that households have not been able to save enough because of sustained high inflation. Incidentally, financial liabilities for households went up from 3.8% of GDP in 21-22 to 5.8% in 22-23. Now, which of course could be because people bought, for example, more real estate. Yesterday, we touched upon how sales of several consumer products were falling and in some cases quite sharply over the last year. Kirana stores are stocking less and distributors are worrying about high inventory levels. Now, how this all is linking together is not very clear to me right now. But it could unspool in coming days and weeks, is what I feel. Now, what is clear is that the demand is weak at several levels and people are either constrained from spending or holding off for other reasons. To get a better sense, though, I reached out to Madan Sabnavis, Chief Economist at Bank of Baroda Research, and began by asking him first if he could explain to us what was going on in this data set. So the RBA data is in two parts. One is about gross financial savings of households, and the other one is net financial savings. So the gross financial savings are actually the kind of savings which people like you and I are putting into various avenues, which could be bank deposits, or maybe mutual funds, stock markets, pension funds, so on and so forth. 
But I think that so-called stunning number which you're talking of is more of net financial savings because what we do is you get your gross financial savings and you also see what are your financial liabilities. So what kind of borrowings have been reckoned by the households? And then you take the net effect and that is your net financial savings which has come down to an all-time low. So it's a combination of two factors. One is what is happening to the gross financial savings. Second, what is happening in terms of overall financial liabilities of households, which is basically your borrowings. And then the net figure it comes to net financials. Okay. So what's now changing on the denominator, so to speak? It's not so much of a denominator, I would say, in the numerator itself. Because looking at the numerator, which is overall gross savings minus the borrowings. So there's a case of saying that households are more leveraged than what they were earlier. So there is a case of borrowings going up. And this also manifests when we keep looking at how bank credit growth has been, where all banks are concentrating a lot on retail loans. So as retail loans keep increasing, it's but natural that the liabilities of the borrowers, that is the households, keeps increasing. And that is what we have really seen. So we have a phenomenon here where gross financial savings is also slowed down. There are, of course, certain reasons for that, which we can discuss a little later on. But the important part is that as your liabilities keep increasing, as households keep borrowing more in net terms, you have seen that their net financial savings has actually come down to the level of 5.1% in 22-23. So when we're talking in terms of their borrowings, it's essentially what are they borrowing for? They borrow either for assets or for personal consumption. And what we have seen is that there has been major increases, of course, in uh, borrowings which lead to asset creation. When I say asset creation, if you're borrowing money to buy a house, there is an asset which is being created. If I borrow money to buy an automobile, I'm creating an asset. I don't see too much of a problem out there. However, if I'm borrowing for personal consumption, which is a model which was used also in certain Western economies for growth, but there could be problems in case we don't have commensurate increase in income and the debt servicing capability doesn't really rise commensurately with your liabilities which you're taking on. Okay, so now you said the gross financial assets and why that's slowing down and you wanted to break that up. So if you look at the gross financial savings, see, they have been slowing down for a couple of reasons. So ever since we had the pandemic, there was a case of saying that a lot of us wanted to spend money, but we couldn't because of the lockdowns which were there. So as the economy started opening up, there was a tendency for what we call the pent-up demand phenomenon to come, where people were buying left, right and center, both on personal things as well as for buying assets, like maybe buying a consumer durable goods, so on and so forth. So there was a case of saying that consumption went up. So when consumption goes up and my income remains more or less stable, or increases only at a marginal rate, which is what we also saw in terms of how incomes of people have been going up, there was a case of saying that your savings gets truncated. Add to this the factor that we have had fairly high inflation in the last three years. In fact, if I accumulate inflation for the last three years, it's around 20%. Add to it also today that we're running at an inflation rate of around 6% in the second quarter. First quarter was, of course, lower. But for the year, again, we may end up at something like 5.5%. It would mean that whatever I was buying was being bought at a higher cost because of inflation. And to that extent, there was a compromise made on savings. Because I've combined the pent-up demand along with higher inflation, I want to maintain my consumption. Automatically, there's a case of me cutting down on my savings. And that is what is getting captured in your gross financial savings now. And on the other side, you people are investing more or taking loans. This obviously could be for housing and physical assets. So that's not a bad thing, I'm assuming. Yeah, see, it's not a bad thing. In fact, even if I'm borrowing for the sake of consumption, there is nothing amiss probably unless the economy stops growing and jobs are not really creating my income stories. 
Mr. Fai, actually take you to how the U.S. economy had grown. This I'm taking it around 30, 40 years back. It was based on consumerism, which was based on leverage. So borrowing for consumption is not bad because the moment you consume, there is a case of saying that there is demand being built up. Then your capacity utilization keeps improving. There's further investment which takes place and more jobs are created. And there is this self-fulfilling circle which, which is created. So borrowing by households is not a bad sign as such. It is a positive sign. But we need to make sure that assets are created and the economy grows. Otherwise, there could be problems in terms of delinquency coming at the retail level. Right. So as you look ahead, is this or could this be a new normal of sorts, the way people are spending or saving or the amount of assets we are creating? I don't think this will be something which will be sustained for a very long time. The reason being that the pent-up demand phenomenon is more or less exhausted. So at the gross level, I think there will be a case of savings once more increasing. And we should also remember that at the point of time when we saw the consumption increase and savings come down, it was also a phase where interest rates were ridiculously low. It was under special conditions. Though I admit that for 22-23, the RBI did start uh, increasing the interest rates. But I think once you get into that flow of spending, you probably do not really bother about what's really happening. And that's what we really saw, that people were not saving. Because the whole idea is that if I get a 5% return on a fixed deposit, it's not really attractive. I might as well continue with my consumption, which is what I think most households did. But now that we have seen that rates have become more competitive and you're getting better returns on your savings, people are going back to bank deposits. People are also looking at other fixed income assets. And of course, the mutual funds, etc., are still giving fairly good returns the way in which the stock markets have performed. So I would tend to think that this kind of fall in savings is not something which we may see in the next couple of years. It will definitely be a revival which will take place. As to the second part about whether leverage will continue to increase, Yes, with a lot of focus being put by uh, banks on retail lending because it is believed that retail lending is relatively much safer when it comes to delinquency compared to corporates. That may probably continue. But there, I think, even the RBI has raised a red flag about the other personal loans component, that is, which is non-collateralized, is something which banks should be uh, careful about. And I think banks are looking into that carefully when they're giving the loans. But I think there is a lot of ring fencing which goes on. But I think the short answer to your question Leveraging will continue, so therefore we continue to borrow money. But at the same time, I think your gross financial savings would tend to pick up once more, maybe in this year itself, and definitely from next year onwards. Right, Madan, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. India, part of tectonic shifts in global manufacturing. India, Southeast Asia and Mexico are quickly emerging as the future export manufacturing houses with competitive cost structures, deep pools of labor and growing scale and capabilities across diverse industries, says a new report and survey from consulting firm Boston Consulting Group. Now, this is the outcome of a survey where more than 90% of North American manufacturing executives have said that they have moved some of their production and sourcing to different countries over the past five years and will continue to do so over the next five. These shifts are also happening at a time when U.S. domestic manufacturing is ramping up in response to policy support and rising demand. The primary driver of these shifts is the ongoing quest for low costs, says BCG, but adds that respondents in the survey also indicated a strong desire to shorten lead-in times, operate in more stable business environments, and gain flexibility to respond to disruption even at the cost of several points of operating margin. Now, these are, of course, important points and should be a clear input to policymakers that cost in itself is not the key driver, but supply chain efficiency is. 
Interestingly, BCG says that a successful transformation of a manufacturing and sourcing footprint tailored towards the end market can improve companies' resilience and sustainability and cut global manufacturing and supply chain costs by anywhere between 20 to 50%. And the last part should, of course, be music to some years. Now, manufacturing migration is also being driven by wage inflation and tight labor markets and, of course, productivity of factory workers. Productivity-adjusted labor costs for India rose 18%, but it still remains among the world's most competitive sources of manufacturing, along with Mexico, also the most competitive nearshore option for the United States. But the BCG report says data is reflecting the shifts. U.S. goods import from China declined 10% in the last four years, ended 2022, and in inflation-adjusted terms, they rose by 44% from India. BCG quotes the example of a high-end electronics manufacturer setting up a new factory site in India, owing to both geopolitics and supply chain pressures, as well as an East Asian automaker and a US toy and game manufacturer, also for the same reasons. India has virtually banned imports of toys from China, as you perhaps know. The move has led to a fair amount of domestic manufacture, but also, more interestingly, an increased recognition of local arts and crafts in toy making. The BCG report does point out that despite rising labor costs, China remains competitive thanks to its current workforce availability, extensive supplier base, logistics infrastructure, and key role in certain industrial value chains. India's logistic infrastructure is unevenly developed, its environmental sustainability can be weak, and it has fewer free trade agreements with nations other than members of ASEAN. On the flip side, India is cost-competitive and is just starting to emerge as a major exporter with a broad manufacturing base that supplies much of electronic vehicles to heavy machinery, to chemicals and appliances for its domestic market, says the report. And that's it from me for now. Do log on to www.thecore.in, subscribe to our newsletter, visit our website, listen to our podcasts and also watch our videos. Thanks very much for being a patient listener all through this week. See you next week, same time. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.